Wow. What great music for the new intro. That is by my good friend, Wes Cunningham. No relationship to me. Um, I asked Wes to uh, create some new music. I gave him a song by Tyler Childers called Jersey Giant and some other stuff. And I said, this is how I feel. Uh, hopeful, excited about the future. Looking forward to meeting some new people. Looking forward to uh, building building community, building relationships. And uh, I wanted you to bang a guitar. And he did it. So this is season two of the mixtape with Scott, and it's great to be back. We have a great lineup of people that are going to be interviewed this year, and the hope is we can do like last season, cram in around 35 episodes, maybe 40, give or take. Um, before I introduce the guests, I wanted to read a, uh, a line from a great book by Susan Johnson, a book I just read entitled, Hold Me Tight, Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love. Uh, and it goes like this. We use stories to make sense of our lives, and we use stories as models to guide us in the future. We shape stories, and then stories shape us. I could not have said it better myself. That is my entire worldview condensed to three short sentences. The ethos of the mixtape is just that. These are the personal stories of economists, scientists, and authors. And as you listen to their stories, the hope is that you hear echoes maybe of your own story. And if we're all lucky, not only will we feel a sense of connection to the interviewee, we may even come away feeling understood and having with us a story that helps us make sense of our own lives, and maybe even a model that helps us guide our historical lives as well. So listen close, open your heart, and be curious as we learn about the life of the one, the only, Dr. Jeffrey Wooldridge, University Distinguished Professor of Economics at Michigan State University and author of two best-selling books in econometrics that have raised a generation of economists, both at the undergrad and at the graduate level. Thanks for tuning in to the Mixtape with Scott Season 2. I'm your host, Scott Cunningham. Okay, well, it is a real, real pleasure today to have with me um, uh, a famous person on the the podcast, uh, Jeffrey Wooldridge. Jeff, thanks so much for uh, being on the, the podcast today. Oh, thank, thanks very much for having me, Scott. I've been looking forward to this. Well, can, can you, for the sake of the listeners, say your name, your job title, and, um, and who pays you for a living? <laughs> yes, I, I'm Jeff Wooldridge. Um, I'm at Michigan State University, where I've been a university distinguished professor since I think 2001. And I am recently named the Walter Adams Faculty Fellow in Economics. And um, I teach and do research primarily in econometrics. Awesome, awesome. Uh, well, so where did you, so before we get into your career, so uh, where did you grow up? I grew up, I was born and grew up in Concord, California, which is, to put it on the map, it's about uh, 25 miles or so east of Berkeley uh, in the Bay Area in California. So, you know, there are lots of suburbs out there, Concord, Walnut Creek, Lafayette, Pleasant Hill, and so on. And um, I grew up in one of them okay. during, the, during the tail end of the baby boom. Okay. Okay. What did you like to do as a kid? What was it like growing up there? Um, let's see, sports were very, uh, important in my family's life. So uh -huh. they're starting at an early age. There probably wasn't a season that went by where 
one wasn't playing, you know, and this is my two brothers and I, we would be playing, um, you know, football in football season, basketball and basketball season and baseball in baseball season. So we did a lot of, um, a lot of sports in the summers there. It's quite warm. You know, we like to camp out in our yard and, you know, go to the swimming pool and that sort of thing, you know, so, so standard kids stuff, um, yeah. with, uh, you know, and it, it was, uh, I think at the time when I was really young, we probably would be classified as, you know, lower middle class, something. Oh, like okay. That. Okay. Okay, cool. What did your dad, what did your, what did your parents do for a living? So um, my father initially worked at an oil refinery um, nearby. And then oh. when I was about nine years old, he became a California highway patrol officer. Um, oh, wow. My parents were divorced when I was real young. So I was three years old when they got divorced. And I w- my, my two brothers and I actually uh, lived with my father, which was probably a bit unusual in the, in the early 1960s. So mm-hmm. um, we, we moved with him. He got remarried pretty quickly. Um, and then, you know, although these things are a bit fuzzy in my mind, I, I was pretty young. Um, so yeah, he became a highway patrol officer. That was uh, most of his career working career. Mm-hmm. And, and my mother, um, still still lives in San Francisco and she worked for different companies as a, a records management expert. And, and um, yeah, she's 83 and, and lives in San Francisco by herself still. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Was that, uh, I mean, what do you know about your dad? Like, was that like his longtime dream to be uh, an officer like that? Um, you know what? It's kind of interesting. I, I think he would probably, he he's passed away now, but I, I think oh. he wouldn't mind my saying that he, the way he describes it, he, you know, barely made it out of high school. And so he kind you know, he took a job, which was a, a, you know, blue collar job, but then he had ambitions um, and not just for him, but for his, his children. And so mm. he became, I, I don't really th- never really sense that he had this desire to become a law enforcement officer. But when he told us that he, you know, had to go away for several months to the Academy in Sacramento, I I remember being caught off guard a bit, but you know, it was, it seemed like a good thing and it turned out to be a good thing for him and and for the family as well. Yeah. Wow. Well, so, you know, uh, growing up uh, for me, you know, when I think about like, the the things that when I look back the things that really gave me a sense of peace kind of growing up was uh stories collecting comic books reading books going to the library was it what what was it like for you as a kid was it was it sports or was it something else that it was yeah it was mostly sports and to tell you the truth when (laughs) back then when I read books they were often about sports or oh yeah or some or or pretty light reading you know like the Hardy Boys you know or you know Nancy Drew or something like that Um, so I I can't really claim to have I I think no one would have predicted that I would become an academic back right right on the other hand I think nobody would have predicted that I would become you know an NBA basketball player either (laughs) (laughs) what um, did you want to be what did you want to be growing up yeah I think I think I thought you know at some point that I would become you know some sort of professional athlete just because kids are are irrational and you know you have a little bit of success 
at sports when you're right. a kid and you have you have no idea of what the competition is like right. out there. So that, you know, it's it was probably something mundane like that. Yeah. yeah. Not, not really kind of expanding, expanding my opportunities in my own mind at that point. Right. Right. Uh, well, I mean, teachers, they had, that had, were teachers sort of observing that you had sort, um, of, this, sort of these like skills though, as a, as that's a, that's really interesting person? question. Yeah. I, I think the answer is yes, but I mean, I, I always did well in school and my brothers did well in school. So my dad, one of the things he, you know, once he figured out in first, second, third grade that you could do well in school, mm. then it was mandatory that you did right. well in school. So there, there was, you know, there was none of this, you can't handle the work anymore, right? Even yeah. as the, the work got harder. So I think there was a sense of that, but I, I will admit that I don't, I've never done well on standardized tests and that mm. would include, I believe an IQ test. And so mm. I remember when I had just started middle school, they wanted to me to participate with the gifted kids in some special activities, but they had to get special permission because my IQ wasn't high enough. Oh, <laughs> so, wow, that's funny. so, but so, you know, they, the, the schools did a really good job. And I thought in, in Northern California, kind of looking out for the kids. And right. um, I was one of the fortunate ones. Well, so did you see, so, but you did do well. So what you were sort of just very diligent, hardworking or something like that. I think that's it actually. I think I, I was, I was a hard worker. I think I stayed a hard worker through mm -hmm. college and graduate school and so on. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, you can, you know, a lot of, you know, and there's something there, um, you know, there's some level of, of intelligence there, but I don't think kind of native intelligence, you know, where you can just see a math problem like and solve it in, right. you know, 10 seconds, whereas I need to get out the pad and paper and kind right. of work it through sort of. Right, thing, yeah. right. You know, I might just bring this up now. There's this, um, there's this, uh, this guy at the University of Chicago, David Ga Galenson. Uh, he, he's like a economic historian. And he studies creativity and he talks about these like two, two different types of creative people. And he, and the thing I remember is uh, Jackson Pollock and Andy Warhol, because like from a distance, they like kind of seem like the same type of person. Like they're both ah. doing abstract stuff, but he like, and he has this JPE where he analyzed uh, auction prices and uh, on their um, on these. And he kind of, kind of supports this theory he has, which is that, that they're very different. There's like one type of creativity that's more of like a returns to experience type. And he said, uh, like, he's like Pollock. It was like, you don't really know this, but it's like very technical kind of things that he's doing over and I over see. and over again. And his age earnings profile peaks much later, but like Warhol, it was, he's this other type. That's like just this kind of burst of conceptual breakthroughs early. And, um, and you know, they're both, painters they're both abstract they're both 20th century and he said you know those are the two different types of creativity and i just was kind of wondering are, what 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 are you <laughs> that's a good question <laughs> so as you were talking about that i was trying to sort out if i could figure out you know as, such as it is i mean you know i suppose I've had a certain kind of creativity, but it's 
you know, a lot of it is just a knack maybe for putting things together in a certain way. And I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I, I have some, I've written some papers that I'm, I'm pretty proud of, not Mm. enough of those types of papers, but yeah, some, I think there is this bit of um, experience going into it, right? Like you, you can use that experience to analyze problems from different angles, I think. Mm. And if you maybe stare at them from enough different angles, something clicks and, and you get a new insight. And so you can produce something that, that may actually look somewhat creative in the end. Mm. Um, mm. But maybe it's, but it's not necessarily this kind of aha moment. I feel I've had a few of those, but it's, um, as you were describing these two different types of creativity, it's probably more the experience profile. More of the Pollock. Yeah. Do you think econometrics, well, then kind of stepping back, are there econometricians that you would sort of say, well, that's a Andy Warhol type who makes these massive breakthroughs really early. And then there's like Jackson Pollock types who you can just see their work getting better and better. Well, you know, I, I think the, um, I think the local average treatment effects stuff, you know, <laughs> that Josh Angrist and Hito Imbens, you know, partly won the Nobel prize for, I, I think that's, that's a real breakthrough, right? I mean, that, mm. it's not as if they, they didn't invent the potential outcomes framework, but, yeah. but kind of that leap where, you know, the, the treatment status um, has two potential outcomes yeah. as well, you know, based on the assignment of the instrument. It's, you know, ex post, it's such a simple, I, neat idea, but, yeah. you know, it was, in, in, you know, I think a, a big break, break few, breakthrough of that kind of, you know, aha moment. Yeah. I've, I've never, you know, I should have, have you, have you asked them about that? Like, yeah, is this, yeah. yeah. yeah he okay. said Chamberlain, he said, they said uh, Gary Chamberlain is the one that suggested that uh-huh. doing the potential yeah. treatment. No, that's right. In fact, they, they even, I believe, footnote that in the paper. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. He said, Inben said, Inben said they had this uh, index model originally, and it was like very complicated with a lot of integrals. And then when they, saw the the potential treatment status it just all simplified a lot easier well so what's like a what's a classic econometrician who you would say yeah like they just kept getting their they just over time just got so interesting and as they got older Uh oh, (laughs) a return to experience person do yeah do so you think some people might take offense at that because does that sound i don't know i don't know you're labeling them as someone who's a like a slogger or something yeah exactly maybe well those i I don't know do i you could say i I probably shouldn't uh, um well is there like a is there some are are there are there is there something go ahead so i i could maybe just talk out loud about this so if, if we go back to my former thesis advisor, Hal White, you know, Mm. who was working in the early eighties on the heteroscedasticity, robust standard errors and the, the misspecified maximum likelihood stuff there, there is, you know, there's a bit of an aha moment there as well, I think, but it's also true that I think he was training himself in asymptotic theory at that time. And so it was that kind of continued training with kind of understanding 
you know, things from probability, like right. how, how iterated expectations works and, you know, and that's, and, and then just kind of bringing all of that knowledge together. Mm. And then he kind of saw that, you know, we had been, we in the sense of the profession had been approaching the, the problem of getting um, robust standard errors incorrectly. Mm. And, and, you know, that, that there was actually a very simple way to think about this. And once you kind of boiled it down to simple asymptotics, it became a fairly simple problem. Mm, mm, yeah. Cool. Well, so you are in high school going back. I jumped ahead. Into yeah, the that's future, okay. But, the, but nothing, it, nothing interesting happens between. You. <laughs> <laughs> well, so when, when, when do you decide what, what is your first, exposure to economics before we i'm just i'm curious is there something that you yeah, so, yeah that's a really good question so so i went to a, a quite large high school i mean by the standards of so i think it probably maybe uh 820 in my graduating class so multiply that by four and we're up to about 3300 i guess um but we didn't have anything like we didn't have a course in economics um we didn't actually have any AP courses either in anything. So mm -hmm. I would hear kids in my calc. So we had one calculus course, which, you know, um, it was natural that people who showed, you know, s some aptitude in math were going to take their senior year. And, and I remember hearing some of the kids talk about economics and I, you know, I knew what it was, but I didn't really know what it was as an academic field at yeah, all. Right. But, um, but when I went to, um, so then I went to college at, at Berkeley um, because it happened to be the closest university. Mm. So I, I was quite fortunate in one of those, you know, location right. serendipity things where I just happened to be within commute distance of a great university. And, what year is that? And, uh, 1978 is when oh, I started okay. at Cal, and and so um, fortunately the uh, the BART trains, the Bay Area Rapid Transit, had just opened pretty recently, so I was able to commute from Concord to Berkeley my first oh, year, wow. and I was pretty much, um, you know, it was a great deal back then. There was no tuition, there were some some fees, but there was no tuition, and it was quite a bit easier to get in then compared with, with the competition. It was still now, an excellent, it was an excellent, but, it, but the, the, it was an excellent school, but you could get in without great standardized test scores as mm. it turns out. And so it was really my father who was pushing me to major in business because he, he was all in favor of going to college. This yeah. is one thing he wanted for us, but you know, I think for him, it was, you do this so you can get a better job. Get a better right? job, right. And he, so what makes sense is to get a degree in, in you know, business administration or something yeah, like that. Now, right. of course, along the way, if you do that to get into the business college, you have to take an economics course. Yeah. You have to take statistics. You have to take computer science. And, mm -hmm. you know, Oh, you these have to take things, computer science? Yeah. So there was a, a, a an intro computer science type course. Wow. And, um, once I did that, um, that really, so, so I got hooked actually on computer science and economics, which I wound up 
double majoring in. Oh, so because of the, cause you were doing what yeah, your dad, you were that's your basically dad's so, so I have my dad to thank for that because if I had, you know, to tell if I had chosen something like um, history or political science and it wasn't obvious. I mean, I was, I was a bit burnt out on the math thing coming out of high school because, mm-hmm. you know, I had been just, you know, always in the high level math class and I, I could see, you know, that I was not close to the best in the class in, right. in math. And so, you know, I, so b- business sounded okay, right? I mean, it sounded like, okay, I can handle that math, but I didn't, you know, think I would take an economics course and, and fall in love with it. And, and same with computer science. And, and mm-hmm. I did. And so I started thinking about it and, you know, I, I guess I was becoming, I mean, that's, that's this probably the only sense in which I've ever been a bit rebellious as I, you know, told my dad, I said, I don't really want to major in business. I, I want to, you know, I like these two things and I'm going to try to double major in them and see if I can do it. And so yeah. I, I was able to do it. And it was, along the way, of course, that, that meant, you know, taking math and statistics. Yeah. And so I, I loaded up on those courses. Right. Right. Well. Who, who, what professors really made an impression on you when you were at Berkeley? Was McFadden there? McFadden was not there at the time, actually. So the the kind of interesting thing about um, Berkeley is that you do actually see lots of um, adjuncts, um, sometimes graduate students, um, sometimes assistant professors in the classroom. Uh, And so I actually didn't have a lot of courses by the by the bigger name economists there, but the one that clearly made the most, uh, had the most impact was when I took the PhD econometrics course from Tom Rothenberg in mm. my last year at Cal. And that mm. I, I'd actually, so it's, it's funny because in the statistics department, I actually took a, a two, two quarter course from Lucien Le- Com, the famous French probabilist who mm. who got inserted into our course, and so we had this course with this this you know this incredible mind, and he was teaching to six people or something like that. It was yeah. really you know at a place like Berkeley that was really um, a treat. But it was Tom Rothenberg when I, as an undergraduate, took his PhD course and and did well in it, and then he kind of started you know <laughs> working with me to basically try to figure out where I could go to graduate school, given my low GRE scores. You know, this is a continuing theme, you know, (laughs) not especially high IQ, not very good SATs, not very good GREs, but I, but I'm fortunate in, in very fortunate to be able to move on to the next level still because uh, largely on my performance in the classroom. That's interesting. So you're doing extraordinarily well in a PhD level econometric yes. course at Berkeley as an undergrad, but you're struggling in the standardized test. What, what, it, what is that? That Why sums it, it up in a nutshell. A I don't measure. know. I mean, I don't know. I, I can tell you when I had to go to Tom Rothenberg's, he's, he's emeritus now, but when I went to his office and had to tell him my GRE score, I think he had a hard time kind of expressing shock <laughs> actually. So, so but you know, measure. but then he was a, you know, he, he's a very realistic down to earth guy. And the mm. next thing was, well, where could you go to graduate school and get funding? That was the next step. Mm-hmm. So you wanted, did you come away from that PhD class thinking it's not just that I want to, 
be an economist. I want to be an econometrician. Or do you even think in those terms? Do you think in terms I, I of did. Like, no. Did. So so in fact, it was it was econometrics or bust for me at that point. Mm. Okay. So now it's not that I didn't enjoy my other economics courses. I did. I took I took macro from Laura Tyson. I took mm. IO from Drew Fudenberg. I oh, took wow. labor from Bill Dickens. And so there were the, they were all these younger I think all assistant professors at the time. And so I did like those, but it was the combination of, you know, the computer science degree, the statistics, the math, and then taking that econometrics course really mm. brought it all together for me. So in fact, when, when uh, Rothenberg um, rec- suggested that I go to UC San Diego, he said, now I, you know, they're really good in, in econometrics and theory they're they're getting better in other fields but they don't have a lot of people working in those fields yet so you know are, are you really sure you want to do a oh right so and, if you and, go to you san know, diego you really are you've kind of you're not hedging yeah i mean it's it, people did other things and, i mean you are i actually i actually a great program so you're 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 going to a great program but it's like you're going to be going to become an econometrician that's basically that was in my mindset for sure yeah wow yes wow yeah. Okay, sorry. So, so you go and you get in, and I get in, and not only that, I get a nice fellowship. Oh. And ba- basically, and I've heard things recently that basically they called up Tom Rothenberg and said, "They were like, hey, hey what, sure what, what's no, 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 hey, what's with this guy? What's with the GRE <laughs> scores? But you're writing this letter about him, you know, and so, um, you know, but they." you know, again, to my great fortune, they, they got me this really nice fellowship. And then mm. of course, after that, I was a, a teaching assistant um, for the last couple of years. Were you wanting to stay in California or was it, it at that point? It yeah, really that's was a really good question. No, I wasn't really wanting to stay. It was more like, um, I mean, so, you know, the choice Rothenberg was basically saying like, well, maybe you could get into MIT, but you're not going to get any funding. And I said, well, that's out of the question. So it was basically more like, um, you know, what gave me the best chance to Mm. be funded my first couple of years without Mm. question. And so, no, I, it's true that I had rarely traveled outside California, like, and never, never east of Arizona. So mm-hmm. I hadn't been anywhere outside the West Coast when I, mm-hmm. e- even when I, when I graduated from college, actually. Mm. Well, so, uh, so you, you go to, you go to San Diego. What, what were you expecting that first year to be like? Did you have any idea? So I have, you know, I have to admit that um, having done well in the PhD yeah. course at Berkeley gave me some confidence, right? Mm-hmm. That. But I also knew that San Diego's program back then, especially it was, it was very technical. In fact, the first quarter of classes <clears throat> consisted of um, multivariate, you know, uh, multivariable calculus optimization, mm-hmm. uh, matrix algebra. That was the statistics course. And, and then uh, there was a macro course, but it was, it was all kind of pure math except, you know, two of the three courses. And so, I thought that I probably would find that appealing um, yeah. given my thinking at the time and, you know, my record coming out of Berkeley. And I did find it very appealing, actually. And mm-hmm. um, 
and they they skipped me out of the first year of econometrics based on my performance in the course at Berkeley. So mm. so I I started in the second year in econometrics and then also sat in on the first year courses just to make sure, you know, that I was not missing out on anything in that way it let me kind of hang out more with the cohort of students I came in with. Who are the econometricians that were there that you were learning from? So, so again, it was just this amazing um, opportunity because Hal White was there. And so this is now 1982. His heteroscedasticity robust paper had come out in 1980. His um, maximum likelihood uh, estimation of misspecified models had come out in 82. Mm. And so there I am arriving at this moment. And so, and then there are two future Nobel prize winners there as well. Rob, Rob Engel and Clive Granger wow. you know, doing there. Are they so, all assistant professors is white. Uh, no, actually. So, um, Hal, I guess he was probably an associate at the time. Engel and mm. Granger were full professors at that time. Oh, okay. And and they were actually they were just starting the 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 co-integration stuff. They was, were just starting it. They were. It was you know in working paper form. I remember. Wow. I re- actually remember seeing a working papers that said you know do not circulate without permission that sort of thing and and saw huh. some seminars and you know it was it was a bit it was above me at the time but yeah you know, by the time I left, I, you know, pretty much uh, knew. And, and Engel then was working on his arch stuff, his mm. arch, his classic, you know, autoregressive conditional heteroscedasticity paper came out in 1982 mm. also. And, and I actually got in on a project with him and a, um, a, a someone in my cohort, a Tim Ballerslev, um, and we published these, this joint paper together. Wow. Did you get a feeling that, I mean, what's, I mean, you know, like when you're swim, when you're a fish in water, you don't know you're in water. So, you know, like, did you, did you sort of feel like, wow, this is, I'm in the middle of some, something unique uh, historically, or is it just like everything I'm learning is, is new. And so you don't know exactly what is going to be the stuff that, I mean, like that heteroscedasticity stuff that had just come out. I mean, did you have a sense of its importance when you were younger, like when you were there? Yeah, I I could fib, I guess, and say, oh yeah, I saw, I I could see Nobel prizes on the horizon and how you know this this would become the standard in computing standard errors. But I think it was more like, yeah, in the first couple of years, you're just kind of you know taking it all in and. I didn't have any real basis for comparison, right? Back mm. then, they didn't really. I mean, Hal was pretty good at at pushing me along to try to, you know, get me going on research. But it's still, you know, as a general rule, we were still focused more on our coursework. And mm. I was I was doing some things with Hal, you know, early on. But I, you know, you can't. How do you know? I mean, right. I wasn't at I wasn't at MIT. I wasn't at Yale. I wasn't at you know Harvard or Chicago yeah. so you don't know what's going on you know right. other places and it turned right. you know of course there was a lot of very interesting stuff going on at those places as well yeah 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 well, I mean what do you think the value you know you think about like people in education always write about value added what do you if you I mean it's it's all counterfactual so you don't really know what but what do you think is like was the the investments that San Diego at that time 
made in you that really changed you? How, how would you have been different if you had gone to, I mean, I'm just may ask you to make this up, but like, what, yeah, what, what no, would have been I, different I mean, somewhere else? It, it had, so, so I, when I went there sight unseen, right, without visiting San Diego first, I just said, this is my, basically my, I had two options to stay at Berkeley or go to San Diego and mm-hmm. I was being pushed to go to. So I just went down there and, and the graduate secretary told me on the first day that, you know, Hal White wants to see you on Monday. Um, and by the way, you're not going to be taking the first year class. You're going to be taking the second year class mm. and you're, and you know, you're going to be Hal White's TA. And, and so Hal kind of, he, he took me under his wing right away and he, mm you know, got me doing hard things that pushed me like grading problem sets for second year econometrics um, mm. as a first year student. And yeah. so it's, it's hard to think, I mean, you know, it, when you go into a, a top five program, the, let's face it, I mean, back then, especially the competition is, is, you know, you have all these people who are going to be getting the attention of professors. And I think when Hal, you know, was kind of taking that PhD course at Berkeley and doing well in it. And then I got, a, I got basically Hal's full attention for a couple of years. And I, yeah. I don't, that had a huge effect on me. Yeah. 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 And yeah. you know, it's, it's not that, you know, the stuff that I was doing back then is that closely related to what I do now, but it did give me a, a toolkit for sure to feel comfortable right. going right. forward. I wonder what they, they must have really been. I mean, the, the people that were in charge of admissions, clearly that GRE score, they like were, they clearly were able to interpret your application very clearly. I mean, not only do they let you in, but they give you this fellowship. They let you skip a year. So, I mean, you think that was Rothenberg was just really able to communicate your, your, your potential really well in the letter. I, I, I think he had a lot to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's probably as you kind of, I think alluded to earlier, it's, it's a, I mean, you, you didn't allude to it. You stated it as I'm doing well in this PhD level econometrics course and getting mediocre GRE scores at the same time. So that mm-hmm. probably is a bit strange. And mm-hmm. so then you, they, I guess they had to decide where to put the most weight. Mm. Right. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, uh, it's so important, you know, it's the, 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 the people that are in charge of admissions in the PhD programs have to figure out how to read tea leaves, you know, lots of times, sometimes, I mean, uh, or maybe a lot of times. I mean, there was a, you know, it, it's true. Also, I was double majoring in two hard right. majors and yeah. I had done well in, you know, advanced computer science courses too. So it's not mm-hmm. as if there wasn't any, any information, yeah, information, yeah, yeah. but right. it, it, you know, whatever taking, you know, a homework assignment home in computer science, where you have to write a complicated program, that's right. a different skill from sitting down and seeing, 
<laughs> solving math problems yeah, yeah. in rapid succession. And that, that's just something I guess I've never really mastered. So, well, so you end up getting your first gig is at MIT, right? That's where mm-hmm. you, that's your mm-hmm. place. That must've been, what did you feel like when you got that offer from MIT? Yeah. So that was, that was it. it what's really interesting is that, um, I actually visited a semester at MIT at the beginning of my third year as a PhD student because Hal White went on leave there and he said, you know, this is, you know, an important time for you. Why don't you, you know, come with me on leave? And so basically wow. that was my first trip out of the West Coast. And and I actually drove from uh, San Diego first to Raleigh, North Carolina, and then up to Cambridge. Oh, um, fun. That, that that's kind, fun. Of an, kind of an interesting story. But, um, but uh, so I, you know, met people around there and yeah. I didn't, and I met, you know, a lot of the graduate students and, um, you know, they were really kind to me and, you know, mm. they, I gave lunchtime seminars and, you know, talked to some of the faculty. And so when a couple of years later I had that offer, um, yeah, it just seemed very natural to me. And wow. I, you know, I, I, I felt like, you know, a lot of places would have been a good fit for me, but, um, that one was just, um, you know, based on my previous experience was, was the obvious one for me, not to mention it's one of the top, you know, few economics departments. Yeah. It's historic. It's incredible. That's just, I mean, I bet, I bet your advisors were, what did, I mean, what do you, what do you think, how did Hal respond to you getting a tenure track offer from MIT coming out of San Diego? I mean, he must've been so proud of you. So Hal's PhD was from MIT and his, oh. his advisor was Jerry Hausman. So, oh. so Hal was actually, um, his dissertation is in labor economics. Actually. Oh, and okay. um, he, uh, you know, trained himself as an econometrician, basically. He became interested in estimation problems. So, oh. I mean, <laughs> Hal kind of, I think it's kind of funny because, um, he just kind of took it matter of factly. Really? Like, yeah, like this is what I expected of you, or something like that. So that was that was pretty flattering, actually. In a way, yeah. it was a, a bit a bit scary as well. But well, what know. was it like being an assistant professor? That was like what mid eighties. So it was like eighty five. Oh, yeah, eighty six is when I started there, and mm. it was uh, it was it's a great place, actually. It still is. It was then. To I mean, for a lot of reasons, but to be an assistant professor there was, was really something. Now I have to say it was a bit intimidating um, to teach those students. If you could go through that class, that those classes that I taught and I guarantee you would recognize a a very high percentage of the names of the students in these classes. Right. I mean, these people have had, and not in econometrics, right. They're all over the place, you know, in, in various fields and, in macro, in finance, in labor, you know, public, and so on, and you know, they. So it was uh, one of these things where trying to keep one step ahead of the students. Yeah, sure, I bet, I bet. And you know, it, it's good to be pushed by them actually to yeah. know that they're going to keep you honest. Um, and you know, you're not going to be able to gloss over things or get things wrong and and act like you didn't get them wrong. They're they're going to pick up on that. Did you have role models like when you got when you stepped foot at MIT and you were an assistant professor where they're like economists that you thought my 20 year plan is and you have like a one year, five year, 20 year plan. Maybe you do or don't. But like you you have these plans. 
And it just seems like for me, I, I have plans and, and I inevitably think of other people, you know, I just inevitably think well, that's kind of like what they did. And that's kind of what they did. And, and I'll just kind of watch what they did and, and learn from them. Were there like role models that you sort of had in your mind that you were looking up to when you stepped foot at MIT as assistant yeah, professor? That's a, that's a great question. So I, I can answer it maybe like this. So my dissertation was really technical. Like I was proving, you know, central limit theorems for time series processes, mm. consistency, asymptotic normality for kind of abstract estimation problems. And, you know, that was fun intellectually. It was rewarded back then, um, I think. And, but it wasn't, it really wasn't going to have much of an impact on empirical research. So one of the things about going to MIT is, now you see people like Jerry Hausman and Dan McFadden, mm -hmm. and you see that not only are they premier econometricians, but mm -hmm. they're excellent economists too. And they, mm -hmm. they kind of know about the bottom line, right? And the bottom line is to try to help people do better data analysis. Right. And I have to, I have to mention Gary Chamberlain too, because he was at Harvard, but yeah. there were, you know, we had these and, and, and Gary was, was just really good to me. I mean, he, mm. he kind of, you know, um, you know, I started working on problems, which were more, you know, Chamberlain-esque, I guess, which, which comes with, with its risks, of course, because you can't do anything better than Gary Chamberlain. That's right. one thing right. I learned, but, um, <laughs> but he was always, you know, very complimentary and, um, and, and encouraging. And, you know, we had interactions, not, not just at the formal seminar, but also at lunchtime gatherings mm. and so on. Yeah. So, he seems like he was really good to a lot of you. He really was. Econometricians, yeah. Hito he was. and Josh anger speak really highly of him too yes. what was it what was your what was he doing he was just paying attention and invest what, he was what, paying yeah he would actually you know <laughs> he would actually look at papers and give comments and, and give comments you know and him. and of course he was <laughs> he could be uh you know that giving giving a seminar in front of that joint group <laughs> was quite a quite and you know so and you know um whitney newey became my colleague later on um mm. there so you know he'd be sitting in this room with with Jerry Hausman, Gary Chamberlain, McFadden, Whitney Newey, right? And yeah, um, yeah, and Jim Stock, and you know, so all these people are there, and you're trying so it was to... a so so Cambridge was kind of a in that early '90s, late '80s, it was there. It was a really vibrant community for econometricians. Really vibrant, yes. Yeah, um, it, it it's like I said, my my transition from kind of a technical time series econometrician to more of a applied microeconometrician, although maybe that applied part took a little longer, was, I think, influenced a lot by being in that area. Well, you had this tweet that you tweeted a couple of days ago. You said, it's time to be honest with myself. I'm an applied <laughs> econometrician. Yes. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And uh, I think to a lot of people, when they hear Jeff Wooldridge say that, they, they don't understand what that means. Because you've written... Uh, so much theoretical econometrics. And so I'm just curious, like within econometrics, what what is this distinction that you're describing? So I guess maybe it's a distinction. And of course, it's I'm partly just trying to get a reaction. Right? Yeah, sure. But it, it I, I think it's this thing where you, you know, I'm being asked to, to referee papers, I, I go to seminars, and 
it just, you know, to kind of dive into some of the current work in econometrics is just quite difficult for me, uh, mat, you know, mathematically, like just if what you're trying to do is say, here are these assumptions, here's this result, and now, you know, try to evaluate whether you think it's true, can you, can you verify the proof? And, and, you know, when I compare it with my own current work, I don't use anything other than just standard asymptotic. So the, the asymptotic theory this is so mundane that there's no reason to even bother writing down technical assumptions. And so I think within the realm of econometrics, mm. that could, I mean, reasonably called, be called applied econometrics. I've, you know, based on referee reports I've gotten. And so <laughs> there's kind right, of that right. oh, suggestion as well. Um, but but I, I, I shouldn't um, offend people who would... I might call um, who who are true empirical economists as well as being applied econometricians, right? And and so I'm probably I'm more theoretical than most of those people, not mm-hmm. all, but most of those people. But then again, I don't really have a field in economics, right? Mm-hmm. So I can't really call myself an empirical economist. Mm-hmm. slash applied econometrician mm-hmm. and actually you know in the old it's not clear what being an applied econometrician actually is you know mm. either you're an econometrician who you know can publish an econometrica in all these places um mm-hmm. or um uh you know you are doing serious empirical work and then there's me who's doing now i've been fortunate to work with some really good co-authors um you know who are expanding the field in in interesting ways um as well but in terms of my own i'm talking about kind of my own single authored research Mm -hmm. it's pretty pretty applied i would say right 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 this this new work that you've done um on design-based inference. I, I feel like this word design, uh, before we even get started, I feel like I'd never heard it. And then I started hearing it, this, the word being used as an adjective, and I had never heard it before. And so before we even kind of get started, I just was wondering, you know, where exact, what exactly does design mean statistically? Uh, where does it fit in the history of like econometrics and statistics? So it, th- this act, the ideas go go way back, you know, to Naaman's, you know, that you've seen this paper, probably this 1923 paper cited yeah. by Naaman. And, and the idea is, you know, in the simplest case, just think of, of observing an entire population. Mm-hmm. So, right. So you, you have all the units in the population and now, uh, and you're doing just a simple, you know, causal inference problem. And in fact, assume that it's, you know, a randomized control trial just to make it, it simple. Mm-hmm. And, um, but you have the whole population. And then, so the question is, if you go back to the intro statistics or intro econometrics view of the world, mm-hmm. where we start by assuming we have a random sample from the population, mm-hmm. and this is how you do your inferences, this is how, you know, from that, um, you know, that perspective, you think about that's the randomness is coming through the the sampling from the population. You don't observe the whole population. And now, you know, there are ways then to compute a standard error to compute a confidence interval. But now suppose you have the entire population. 
How yeah. are you going to introduce uncertainty into the problem? So and- like if you if you if you so there was all this advantages statistically when you were sampling because yes. of all the theory that you got from it. And then all of a sudden we live in 2022 where we live with all the data all the time. Or or at least we don't necessarily have all the data, but we have other issues that are coming up. For mm-hmm. example, how is the so the design is the you know refers to the key explanatory variables, the key causal variables that you're interested in, right? Mm-hmm. So again, in the simplest case, there's just this this binary you know treatment uh, uh, indicator, and so it's not necessarily true that that's the only source of uncertainty. You could still have sampling uncertainty as well. Uh, but right. now the question is, depending on but these how are like the different. assignment these are, is made, these are completely these different These are completely things. different yes, like, that's sources exactly of right. uncertainty. And that's is, it, correct. is it the case like that for some reason, over? I mean, my reading of stats is that, you know, we began to move towards deeper and deeper ideas of sampling. So like you would just have like super populations and these infinite yes. populations that you would sample from, but it was still this core concept of I'm observing units. They're real units. They're just randomly pulled from some yes. other population. And then yes. there's all these tools that are based on that. Yes. And I and think that's, that's different still... than Neiman. <laughs> Considering my books rely heavily on on the random sampling concept, I certainly don't want to throw that out because I do think that because when you have random sampling from a a very large or, you know, quote, infinite population, um, large enough so that, you know, the sample is small relative to the population, Mm -hmm. that allows us to study things like identification in the Mm -hmm. population without having to worry about you know, how does this sampling affect it? And then once you understand the identification problem in the population, Mm -hmm. now you have this sample that's representative of the population. And now you can turn your identification results into, um, into estimators. Okay. But, um, but now, you know, and so that allows you to say, well, now what happens if we have some sort of stratified sampling scheme? Okay. Mm. Does this, do we lose identification of the population parameters because we no longer have a random sample? What happens if we have a cluster sampling scheme, right? And and so it, I think from the, the sampling perspective, it does make sense to say, let's think about what's going on in the population and let's think think about the sample, but then that doesn't cover cases where you actually observe the entire population. And it doesn't cover cases where you may be, you know, the assignment of the key policy variable isn't, isn't ran, isn't independent across units, right? So this raises the issue of you have some sort of clustered assignment in, in some sort of policy intervention where individual units aren't assigned independently, but they're assigned either together as a group to be in the controller treated, or there's at least some correlation in the assignment within particular groups. Mm-hmm. And that, that is that last thing is the, the topic of the Abadi, Athey, Imbens, Wooldridge um, <laughs> uh, paper that I think you're alluding to. You well, can... there's two, right? There's the Econometrica and there's yes, the, yes. The so the first... So the first one came about because we didn't 
we we wanted to dive right into the clustering problem and then realized that there was there was a lot to say about the case with independent sampling still how did this paper come about how do you guys how how y'all are at three different locations so, <laughs> so that's so what but so why are y'all even yeah so so part of it is um you know i think it's i i mean i i i think hito invents is kind of the 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 um the, the force here just because you know of course he's he's co-authored with susan he's co-authored with um alberto and he he's co-authored with me and and we taught these courses together um, right. at, at the nbr in the late yeah. 2000s and so that led to some discussions and he was having discussions with Alberto and Susan as well. So it, it seemed to make sense that, you know, we, and in fact, I can remember then Alberto and I, we team taught a course in, um, uh, in Italy, uh, Bertinoro. And, um, you know, we were talking about some of the, this is back in, I think, 2011, 2012, yeah. something like that. And so it, it took kind of a long time to pull it all together, but mm. we, we took a step back from the clustering issue to say, let's forget about that. And let's see if we can come up with a framework that provides a nice bridge between the traditional random sampling case and the case where you might actually observe the entire population. And mm. so the formulas there that this, these are papers that required working out the asymptotics carefully because it mm. was, you know, you know, you could pull things from various places, but it was new that the entire framework. And so it's new, right? This is sort of a new framework. I mean, yeah, even though you've it's got the, going back to Neiman and stuff. That's it, right. So, it, so it feels there, like you're creating something a little bit original by yeah, bringing so, it all together. So, it, it's the bringing it all together because, of course, the 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 case of design based inference where you see the whole population that does have a long history in statistics, mm -hmm. and of course, statisticians have spent a lot of time on sampling issues as well. But kind of bringing it together and then showing that when you are really sampling you you know you have a a random sample a, a relatively small random sample from a large population mm -hmm. then it's true the usual Iker huber white standard errors are valid but we also allow you to go all the way to the other end where there is no sampling error because you observe the entire population mm -hmm. but the uncertainty is due to this counterfactual right this right this person was assigned to the control, but they could have been assigned to the treatment. Okay. Yeah, and and yeah. Th that's where the uncertainty comes from in the extreme case. Mm -hmm. Is this going to be useful to people that don't do RCTs though? Yes, because we, in the, in the econometrica paper, for example, um, we do have explicitly a regression framework where we have mm. controls and they, and so we actually make a, it's useful there to think about the sources of uncertainty as being setting aside the sampling, the sampling error, um, mm -hmm. being the variables that you really care about, right? Uh -huh. Like if you're looking at the effect of a change in minimum wage laws, then that's what you want to do the counterfactual on. But if you're controlling for other things like demographics about the state, geographic location, you're not really interested in those. So you, you don't do counterfactuals over those. You just say, these are these fixed attributes that we want to control for. Yeah. So you, so you can control for things just like you can in the more traditional setting. Yeah. Well, so did you guys make code for this 
feels like that's how stuff becomes yeah so actually on that for that (laughs) paper i've uh i re i posted something not too long ago on my shared dropbox actually Uh that shows shows how you can do it you know i'm always into you know trying to get standard packages in my case it's stata you know to to do these things so it's all um and i i remember a while back on uh, on twitter you you know when we were having this exchange about frishwa and you yeah. know the the useful results y- you know you can use the frishwa stuff to do to do a partialing out to get these standard errors and then mm. there's a the, the idea is as you get closer and closer to seeing the whole population the adjustment factor of course to the to the standard errors is going to make more and more of a difference because mm you're getting rid of the uns- the sampling uncertainty. Mm. And so it's it's pretty easy to adjust things actually. What was the what was the hardest part of these projects with these three people? What was the hardest part of it? Like the intellectually <laughs> or whatever that made it like for, really for, for me personally. Yeah. Keeping up with keeping up with those three. They're, they're <laughs> like, impressive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's stating the obvious, of course. Right. Um, their 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 history and records speak for themselves. But I guess to, I I think you know there um some the, the asymptotics you know in the clustering paper were very difficult. Um, the but there are conceptual issues too, right? I think the the breakthrough of you know, we can, we can include this case of pure sampling error um, and the case, you know, of where you don't have any sampling error in the same framework, um, I think is, uh, you know, is the big breakthrough. And then Mm. after that, you kind of look for, you know, either, you know, you kind of start off with brute force ways of, of establishing results. And then, you know, you see some simplifications that can happen and watching, (laughs) watching my co-authors kind of have, have insights was, was good for me for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, uh, just a couple more things then we're at the top of the hour and I gotta let you go, but, um, textbooks. So writing books, you've written two really classic, textbooks uh in graduate school uh we would use your uh panel and cross-section book but for the prelim we would uh also use what we called baby woldridge yes. I, I don't know i i just thought we called it that and then on twitter everybody would say baby woldridge uh, it's like somehow I've this heard, is, i've this heard is this everyone. yes yeah it's very fondly called that um uh i i was wondering why did you decide to write those yeah, so um, so I have to I, I have to give credit for the encouragement to write the MIT press book to my colleague Peter Schmidt, who when I first mm-hmm. came to Michigan State, he said, you know, here's this course that it looks like would be really good for you to teach, and it was you know the kind of nonlinear panel course with panel data and and so on, and so and at, at one point, um, you know, after I had been at MSU for a little while, he said, you know you should really, you know, write a book um, doing all of this stuff with vertical bars in the way you do it. And uh, vertical bars means with conditional expectations. And what he's (laughs) kind of comparing that to is the, you know, the way we used to do things with fixed regressors and then all of the, and then suddenly you're, the regressors are no longer fixed. They're random, 
but they're correlated with the error. And that always seemed, you know, the disconnect there, I think, at least caused me confusion when I was mm. first learning that material. So, so then I started writing, you know, as I had always, I've always written slides and things for the course. In fact, the notes for the course, um, for the book, uh, started actually back at MIT when I was teaching some of the nonlinear stuff back at MIT and then um, continued on at, at MSU. And I was approached by somebody at MIT Press um, some time ago, um, and he, uh, he saw me give a presentation at a meeting and said, you know, the way you present things, it looks like you might be, you know, somebody who can write in a way. And so it all kind of came together. Um, yeah. That yeah. Way. yeah. And then the, the intro book, you know, I, I think when I was, you know, really getting interested in going to graduate school as an undergraduate, I started thinking, you know, being a professor has got to be the greatest job. I was just looking around at the professors at Berkeley and I just really liked, and I, I thought that, you know, teaching was the main would be my main focus and yeah. so that naturally wanted me to to write things like textbooks and you know there again it's the right person asking um in mm. a sense and you know i i thought i could do something that was different um than the the existing books and that doesn't mean it's better that doesn't mean people are going yeah. to embrace it but you know it, it turned out a lot of people like the approach yeah that I, that which I one came first the the phd so, so no actually uh, i signed the contract and started working on the intro one first but then shortly after that i signed with mit press and i was actually oh. working on them more or less at the same time oh you, know, you could kind of do one and then you know take a break from it and then do the other one it's, As so, I've told. what's been the so i mean what was the what what was the i mean they're both kind of like dominant position it seems like i don't know sales or anything but it just seems like it seems like it's stock and watson or woldridge usually is what i see people kind of picking between and i just was wondering when you first wrote it though what was the what was sort of the market share that you sort of knew of so i think the i think the most popular book was probably gujarati's book maybe right. at the time um yeah it's kind of interesting i i wrote that i actually had signed with the company back then uh, it's now with cengage but it was south southwestern publishing and I was supposed to write a lower level version of that intro book, but it never happened. And, you know, in fact, probably because the other book was, you know, successful that the publisher became less interested and I became less interested. But I, I was told by the person who signed me that he, he said, um, you know, first you should write the book that you want to write that, you know, just flows out kind of naturally. And then we can talk about, you know, things like market share later on, but that mm -hmm. never, that second part never, never actually happened. Yeah. Um, but I, I knew I, like I said, hanging around MIT, going to, I didn't just go to the econometric seminars. I went to lots of applied seminars. When you listen to applied people discuss their work and how they think of econometric methods, it just seems so different from the way undergraduate books were teaching the subject. And so, mm -hmm. you know, nobody starts their, you know, you know, wage equation by saying, um, let's treat the X's on the right-hand side as fixed. Nobody mm -hmm. said, I mean, the, the discussion immediately launches into, 
do you have good enough controls or do you have a, a convincing instrumental variable? And, and mm -hmm. all of this is couched in the language of correlation, right? Endogeneity is, is, is it, and so it just seemed to me that teaching this kind of old framework mm -hmm. had, had lost its usefulness. <laughs> Yours was the first one to kind of move in that direction, move away from the fixed regressors. I didn't realize that. Maybe it was. Or like it was so so I, I, I need to go. Yeah, I haven't done. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you mentioned, right, that you're, you're interested in his, you're teaching a course in, in yeah, history, history of, of thought. economic yeah. thought, right? Yeah. <laughs> we should have a course. There should be a course in history of econometric thought, right? That, I know, there, I know. I was... should, so I don't, I don't know that for, so, so it's, it's clearly true. Like, for example, I can tell you a book that does Arthur Goldberger actually right. starts from in his book. He starts from, you know, it, it's a PhD level book, but he does start with random regressors. Mm. I will say the book kind of leaves that, you know, somewhat early on to, you know, be able to kind of make the arguments, you know. Is Amemia's book? You, I, I own Amemia's book. But I so Amemia, yes, that's a good question. I would have thought of that as a more... I mean, I was thinking at the introductory level. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah. right. So, okay. so, you know, not, not so, and, you know, my MIT press book, the, one of the funny things about it is it was never really intended to be a first year text. It was really intended for these kind of second year, the second uh, year course that yeah, I yeah, was yeah. teaching. But anyway, mm -hmm. so people, people are, are free to use it however, however they want, of course. Right, right. So that was, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the, for the undergraduate, that was the push that you were, I guess you're not really, yeah, you're not like saying this is the undergraduate book. It's just, this was aiming for a different audience that, and that was the one that was pushing for random regression. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, it was just kind of to introduce this notion where you could, you could start talking about causality early on and, you know, mm. the, the idea of ceteris paribus, ha have you controlled for enough? And, you know, it's very tough to do that with fixed regressors. It's just hard because, to do it with fixed regressors because yeah, they're yeah. the idea of the correlation is harder. Yeah, something. yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I see. Oh, so but, they, it, but I mean, in, in a way, it, but, but the other thing that I, I did is I, I decided that really um, it was important to learn about multiple regression in the simplest setting. And that meant means, you know, random sampling and mm. books before that had kind of just mushed it all together. And so, right. you know, so you could kind of have this, I can allow the, everything to be a random draw from the population that, so that was the setting, right. And then that connects directly with what students learn in intro statistics, which is random sampling as, mm. as you know, the key sampling paradigm. Right. And right. so it, it kind of seemed that kind of natural transition. Yeah. And then of course you can talk about time series and panel data and so on yeah. once, once that's yeah. Been done. Yeah. yeah. So well, what about at the graduate level? What was the book at the graduate level that you think probably when you first started your career writing the graduate book, what would, what do you think it supplanted? So yeah, that's a good question. Um, we used green a lot. Yeah. So, so I would say Green's book was, is definitely intended to start in the first semester and mm. to, to go all the way through. And I just thought, um, I, I would think, you know, there's been this first semester course at least, and then mm -hmm. probably one semester, that's the way we do it at, at MSU is, mm -hmm. you know, probability and stats, kind of a standard linear models course. And then I teach my course in the second year with, with the MIT press book. So I'm not sure there was really, 
so so I guess it probably meant that people were, would reevaluate what they would use in the advanced um, like microeconometrics courses. It just it seemed to me like instead of just having these general frameworks that were supposed to apply to all data structures, right. cross section panel, that the the profession was going more towards here's a course that's mainly intended to train people who are interested in empirical micro. And here's a time series course, which is more for people in empirical macro and finance and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what's been the most rewarding part for you personally about writing books versus writing these research articles? Yeah, I'm definitely much better known for my books than my research (laughs) articles. So people have actually told me that to my, you know, which is, um, a compliment of sorts, I guess, but it, it's, you know, I, I have to admit there's, of course, there's a bit of ego involved here where, you know, I get invited to places, you know, all over the world to give lectures and so on. And the students come up and, you know, they, you know, want to meet me and, you know, say they like my books and so on. And so, you know, but kind of generally to think that, people do seem to cite the books in their empirical research, right? That's the, I mean, these books are written for empirical people. There's nothing, there's nothing, like I said, in my, even in the graduate level book, it's all, you know, once you have kind of mastered the basic probability of, you know, expectations and conditional expectations and, you know, the the law of large numbers, then it it all flows pretty easily. It's just, putting it together in a certain way. Yeah. So, you know, to know that people use that, that the stuff from my book is, is the best part. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, I really appreciate you giving me uh, an hour of your time. It's really wonderful to, to get to walk through your life like this. I really, really enjoyed getting to talk. Thanks. It was, it was a lot of fun, Scott. I, you know, (laughs) some things I've been thinking about and some things you pulled out of me, by the way, uh, congrats on you know getting the the second uh, edition of <laughs> yeah. the mixtape uh, in the works. Yeah, <laughs> in the works. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, no, I'm I'm I I have things in the works too. Right? So yeah. Yeah. I'm quite sympathetic. Yeah. Good. Well, hey, well, I'll talk to you. I'll see you uh, on Twitter. I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Take good. care, Goodbye. Scott.